Coming up on Tech Nation, neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett follows up her book on how emotions are made with seven and a half lessons about the brain. She has some surprises. For instance, there's no reptilian part of your brain. That was just a myth. Then in biotech, treatments to fight diseases caused by inflammation. The focus of a new company, 180 Life Sciences. I'll speak with Dr. Jim Woody, its CEO, about their pipeline of drugs, as well as their lead compound in clinical trials. It's for Dupuytren's contracture, affecting one out of 25 people in Europe and North America. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. At the time of this 2013 Tech Nation interview, Gavin Newsom was running for lieutenant governor of California after serving two terms as mayor of San Francisco and before that, a county supervisor. It was during his tenure as mayor that social media exploded right here in San Francisco. Twitter, Facebook, texting, Google, you name it. He says it made him wonder, why are we more engaged with each other on social media and less engaged with government? You brought me back when I was a county supervisor. I remember there was a big debate about whether or not we should charge people a premium for paying their parking tickets online, as if we were offering some extraordinary service uh, and there would be a penalty associated with it. And of course, when I was mayor early on, Biz Stone and Evan Williams, the co-founders of Twitter, no one knew what that was. I remember they tried to get a meeting with me and uh, we had a staff that said, well, you know, he's really busy. And I said, boy, I'm just intrigued. What's, what, what's this Twitter thing? Is that a sound? What, what is it? And of course, here we are uh, a few years later. It's remarkable how ubiquitous these smartphones are as we move mobile local, social now uh, to the cloud and how far we've come in such a short period of time. And you're right, that disconnect is, from my perspective, this new digital divide that's taking shape. You know, we talk so much about socioeconomics. Five years ago, I was trying to Wi-Fi public housing in San Francisco as a big call to arms. And now I uh, look around and I was brought by my former homeless czar in San Francisco to a homeless shelter the other day. And the big concern they have is access to walls to get their cell phones into their smartphones charged. (laughs) And I thought, this world has changed. And I'm not, you know, not that long ago. So we've got to reconcile that and we've got to close that gap. And and I think it's serious because you have a whole generation of folks that have grown up digital uh, or as digital natives. And uh, they're just not going to be educated. They're not going to be engaged. They're not going to be as interested uh, in this analog model, this hierarchical top-down governmental model in terms of their engagement in the future. And you're seeing the contours of that already. We're so good at amplifying voices. I mean, relatively speaking. And certainly President Obama sort of picking up on that Howard Dean model and the great work Joe Trippi did with the My Barack Obama campaign. 35,000 self-organized communities came together, really in a sort of 21st century email campaign. It really wasn't that much more than that, but at the time, truly cutting edge. And folks were very enthusiastic and excited. Their voices were amplified, not just uh, to self-organize and volunteer, but also to donate and, of course, uh, to vote. And they did in historic ways. That said, once the election was over, everyone started feeling left out. They started feeling like their voices didn't matter. And in response to that, uh, President Obama said, oh, no, no, we're going to keep this going and did something called change.gov or change.org. And 
asked everyone, what's their priority? 2008, you know, war in Iraq, war on, uh, in Afghanistan, war on terror and climate change issues. And of course, the financial meltdown are the backdrop. And what did people want? All these communities came together, dominantly said, legalize marijuana. <laughs> and President Obama Whoa. made a flippant, infamously flippant comment. And folks did not like the nature of that response because uh, they were serious. And immediately that site went down for reconstruction. Those voices were turned off and we had a broadcast model. It's not an indictment of the president. He's done more on this than anyone else. But in essence, a broadcast model for the next four years until last year. All of a sudden, hey, Bob, how are you? It's President Obama again. Hey, Michelle has just called me. I got a call from President Clinton on behalf of President Obama. Uh, all of a sudden we cared or they cared and we mattered. And so the question is, can we govern with these tools of technology and have a two-way, not a one-way conversation with this sort of broadcast professor, I say respectfully, student relationship, but a real Socratic iterative relationship where we're co-producers uh, and co-creators as this whole millennial generation is become more and more accustomed to. At the time of this interview in 2013, Gavin Newsom had just published his book, Citizenville, How to Take the Town Square Digital and Reinvent Government. He went on to win the lieutenant governorship in California, twice, and on January 7, 2019, Gavin Newsom was sworn in as the governor of California. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Northeastern University neuroscientist and psychologist, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's here today with seven and a half lessons about the brain. Then it's Dr. Jim Woody, the CEO of 180 Life Sciences, a new company, instantly global, fighting a host of inflammatory diseases, including Dupuytren's contracture. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now it's seven and a half lessons about the brain with neuroscientist Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Well, Lisa, welcome to TechNation. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, I noticed two things right away about your book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. First, I fully expected as a child of the middle class who was taught to embrace delayed gratification that I didn't have to wade through the entire book to get to the half lesson. You give it right away. And I want to thank you very much for that. And the second is, was that you relating a scientific nugget or two? Is that what you were doing with that half lesson? Uh, the half lesson was really meant to set the stage for the rest of the book. Frankly, I find it really fascinating. Why do we have brains in the first place? I mean, uh, many, many, many creatures, of course, they're tiny little single cell creatures, don't have brains and do, you know, pretty well uh, in this world. So why did we evolve brains in the first place? I just found that to be a, a really, really interesting question. And originally, that was all part of the first lesson. So 
um, lesson uh, one and the half lesson really were one whole lesson. And after I drafted the uh, essay, I was working with my editor and we thought it was too long. And so I was like, I don't want to have eight lessons and they're not really telling the whole story of brain evolution. So it's kind of like a half a lesson. And, and then I thought, well, that's kind of a cute title for a book. Um, so, uh, so that's how we came to the half lesson. Well, it's interesting to me because the first thing it does set up is that this is not just a book about the brain. It's about the brain and human nature. It's about the brain and who we are, but you still have to start with the brain. I'm very fascinated by bridging the boundary between the sciences and the humanities. I love reading books that way, that do that. And I thought it would be very fun to write one. I also feel that science and philosophy are tools for living, not not in a self-helpy kind of way, but in a a real instrumental way. And they help guide you. They guide your behavior. They guide your um, understanding of how other people act. And so I thought it would be really interesting to try to approach some big questions that we as a society face and that individuals face in their everyday lives by interrogating what kind of a brain do we really have? How does that brain in conversation with our bodies and the rest of the world, which include other brains and bodies, you know, how does our brain create our mind? And what does that tell us about human nature? What does it tell us about who we are? And what does it tell us about our aspirations about who we want to be? Well, if there's one thing we've all been told about the brain is that we have reptilian brain or survival brain. We have an emotional brain and a rational brain. And you write, you have one brain. <laughs> you have one brain. Yeah, that's a myth. It's probably the mo one of the most successful scientific um, myths, um, I think, that scientists have ever created, frankly. And that's because it didn't start off as science. It started off as a morality tale uh, in ancient Greece. And really what what scientists did in the mid 20th century is they just took some pretty potent ideas about morality from Plato and just kind of tattooed it onto the brain. Um, and, you know, if you look at a lizard brain with your uh, naked eye and you look at a mammalian, well, there is no mammalian brain, but I mean, you know, you look at a rat brain and you look at a, a primate brain or a human brain, they look kind of different to the naked eye. And so, you know, descriptively with the techniques that were available in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, it was reasonable for scientists to come up with that hypothesis. But I would say as early as the mid 1970s, scientists had discovered that the idea of a, a, a layered brain, you know, with an inner lizard <laughs> housing your instincts and a limbic system housing your emotions and the cerebral cortex housing your rationality, that I think we've known really for almost 50 years that that's just a myth. It's just a myth. Now, let's get back to something earlier you said, and that's like, okay, well, plenty of creatures got along without brains. At what point in the evolution of creatures, we'll say, or organisms, do you have a brain? Do you say, okay, now that's a brain? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So when does a, when does a clump of cells count as a brain? And of course, you know, scientists 
often debate, the more important the question is, it seems like the longer the debate goes on, right? But I think the idea is um, that um, there's a, I mean, so even something like the an amphioxus, which is the little creature that I write about in um, in the half lesson, which scientists pretty much agree more or less, there's a little bit of debate, but more or less agree that the amphioxus, the the living amphioxus, which is also called the lancelet, uh, the living amphioxus is a good model for the invertebrate animal that um, was the chordate, the the animal before the split between vertebrates and, and invertebrates. So basically before the vertebrate um, innovations, all the innovations that came with having a backbone, which include remarkably to me, a head, <laughs> um, eyes, uh, you Good know, to have. <laughs> like all of these, all of these senses. So um, sometimes when scientists write about amphioxus, they will refer to the amphioxus as having a brain, but it, it doesn't really have the markings of a brain in the sense, they're using that term sort of metaphorically, I think, um, because the cells, there aren't enough of them. They aren't networked. Um, in a way uh, that they don't have enough um, interneurons, which means neurons between sensory and motor neurons. And they appear to be continuous with the structure of the rest of the um, uh, spinal cord. So it's, you know, there is a little clump of cells there. And it is, it does have, if you, you know, if you sort of um, squint and take your glasses off, you know, you can say, well, I can imagine how some of those cells will become a brain in a in a future animal. The genetic markers in the neur in the neurons that are at the top of the notochord in a in an amphioxus, which is similar to a spinal cord that you know that we have, but at the top of the um, the top of where the notochord is, have some genetic markers that are similar to our midbrain and what's called our hindbrain, which just means the brain stem, the subcortical parts of our brain but it's not really functioning on its way there on its way there to be in a brain. <laughs> yeah. It's on its way. Yeah. And actually what's interesting about it is that one of the aspects of, uh, of Darwinian evolution that people don't seem to, or that they have a harder time understanding is that evolution is gradual and it might be slow. It might be fast, but it's always gradual. You always have these kind of intermediate um, creatures um, from one structure to another. And that's what you see, I think in an amphioxus. Now, we'll just kind of crawl along with the brain here for a while in the sense that I have always heard in my life that there's a food chain. Like first there's the little guy and then then a bigger guy wants to eat him and then a bigger guy wants to eat him. And there's this whole food chain. And uh, that requires hunting. And you said we didn't start out with hunting. Yeah. So this is amazing to me, actually. Um, but if you go well back before the Cambrian period, you know, 550 million plus years, animals ate each other, but not with intent. <laughs> so again, you know, think about the amphioxus. Tell that, tell that to the eaten. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But amphioxus, you know, you can see um, uh, little videos on YouTube of an amphioxus. So it kind of wriggles in the water and then it plants itself in the sand like a blade of grass and it just filters food that goes by. 
And then when it's um, detecting a decrease in the food, um, it basically ejects itself, wriggles to some random spot because it can't see or hear or anything. It just wriggles to some random spot and plants itself again on the likelihood that, you know, anywhere that it's going will have more food than where it's been. And that's kind of how it gets around. And scientists now speculate that the main or, or that an important selection pressure that influenced the development of brain was that creatures somehow figured out how to, or, or evolution somehow provided creatures with the capacity to hunt one another. And that this is probably a vertebrate innovation, um, which may have also been um, uh, developed uh, as a, a kind of convergent evolution in invertebrates as well. But remember, an amphioxus can't see and it can't hear, it doesn't have a head. It it really it it, um, it has no sophisticated senses and it has some senses it doesn't even have at all. So it doesn't have what you would call distance senses. That is the ability to detect something up in the in the um, at the, at a distance and wonder like is that thing going to eat me or should I eat it? Um, and so it's with distance sense that you get um, predation. And predation hunting is thought to have driven a lot of really important things that our brains can do. Like, for example, when you and I talk to each other, um, we are automatically making inferences about what the other person is thinking and what they're feeling and what they might say next. And scientists call this theory of mind. And um, the uh, hypothesis is that theory of mind, all, all, what allows us to be social creatures, actually had its start in um, hunting. What we still have in common with all of these creatures is that in every moment, our hormones, our organs, our immune system are producing a storm of sense data, and we are barely aware of it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, right now, for example, as people are listening to uh, this podcast, um, they are probably unaware of the fact that each one of them has a whole drama going on inside their own bodies. Um, and frankly, it's really good that we're not aware of that drama because if we were, we would never pay attention to anything outside our, our own skin ever again. There's a lot going on in there. And if, if, you, if that doesn't seem like common sense to you, just remember the last time that you had a stomach ache or cramps or you know, something inside your body uh, that uh, wasn't feeling very, didn't make you feel very well. You know, when you're, when you have something that you can actually sense inside your body, uh, it's really hard to pay attention to anything outside. It overrides everything else that's going on. Exactly. Oh yeah. And, and so, <laughs> there are some things that we are not wired to feel at all um, and, and except under the most extreme circumstances. So think about, um, you know, if anyone's ever had um, appendicitis, when you have appendicitis, your appendix is about to burst. At the beginning, you can't feel anything but a dull ache in your whole abdomen. It's like not even localized. And as the appendicitis gets worse and worse, you're still, it's, you know, not, it's right up until the point right before when it bursts, when it will kill you that you feel a very specific pain, a very specific jab, you know, in that uh, location in your body. But most of the time up until that, you're just, what you're feeling is kind of like, you know, ache, 
dull ache, which is getting more and more and more intense. And I don't know if any of your listeners are um, women who've been pregnant, but I will tell you <laughs> that um, the first time that I was kicked in the liver or pancreas or whatever the hell it was, that was a sensation that I just had never, ever had. And like ever. <laughs> and it's a singular kick. You see, it's very precise. It's not like someone hits you on the outside and hit a bunch of organs. No, but and it's right. It there. is. And also right at there. first, you know, you have experiential blindness for it because you're like, what was that? What was that? <laughs> um, but, you know, because it's just we're not we're not really all that in tune with the insides of our bodies. And and that's a really good thing, actually, because um, it, it would draw all our attention. And in fact, in some illnesses, for example, um, uh, you know, one way to think about um, depression, for example, um, is uh, that people's brain, you know, that the, a person's brain is kind of, to some extent, hijacked by its body. The person's body is just has a clampdown on the brain and the brain can't really attend to what's going on in the world too much because there's too much discomfort you know, inside the body. Also, chronic pain is is a very, very similar. Well, chronic pain is really a problem in your brain, but um, uh, but it's your brain believing there's something wrong with your body and modeling sensations um, that it believes that are going on in your body, and it just can't dislodge itself from that. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist and psychologist. Dr. Barrett is a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University with appointments at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. You may remember her from her earlier book, How Emotions Are Made. She's here today with seven and a half lessons about the brain. Well, we won't talk about each of the seven lessons, but here's one I really liked. Little brains wire themselves to their world. Yeah, so an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting for a set of wiring instructions from the world and from and from the infant's own body. And what this means is that the brain is born unfinished in a in a fairly substantial way. You know, so a lot of creatures when they're born they're born and then, you know, like think of a little, a little horse, you know, it's born and then the colt is like up and around and, you know, within like the hour. Infants, you know, what does it take? Like nine months for an infant to learn to walk? I mean, they can't even burp by themselves when they're born. And they're really, really helpless little creatures. And that's because their brains are so unfinished. And so there's a lot of input visual input, auditory input, you know, all kinds of sense data from the world and from the infant's own body that are necessary for finishing that brain. But I think the really remarkable thing is that there's also social input that's required to finish a brain. So things like making eye contact with a baby, speaking to a baby, holding a baby, feeding a baby. Um, these are all things that actually are what scientists call expectable input, meaning the baby's brain is expecting regularities from the world to finish wiring. And if it doesn't get those regularities, um, then very, very bad things happen. Well, it's one thing if a baby is born full term in our vernacular, if you will, but what, what happens if a baby is born, say, 
two months early and is in the neonatal intensive care unit? Well, I would say a couple of things are important to know. First of all, neonatal care is made huge advances uh, in the last couple of decades in providing premature infants with what they need to develop properly. So for example, um, in some um, units, they will provide the infant with sounds of the mother's voice muffled as if they were still in utero, for example. And that actually has an effect on the development of the auditory cortex in that infant. But more generally, what I would say is all of an infant's neurons are born, essentially, are birthed off the neural tube in, during when the, when when that before the infant is an infant and when it's just an embryo, right? So all neurons are born in an embryo, and then they migrate to where the position where they need to be, and then they grow, and they 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 their axons grow, their dendrites grow, like all the little connect you know the little connections grow, um, and so an infant that's born prematurely, like say in the last trimester, still has. It's not, it's not a brain that's equivalent to a, 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 a newborn brain of, a, of, a, of an infant that's born to term, that, you know, was um, born at term, but it's still got all its parts. It just needs a little more time to grow. And so, um, and, you know, some of the input that it needs um, uh, will have to come from outside in the world instead of, you know, inside in the uterus. This, of course, begs a really touchy question, which I didn't describe in the book, which is, is a, is a fetus before it's born learning? Like, is the fetus receiving um, sense data and is it learning? And I think that there's really no question that at least in the last, in the third trimester, there's no question that the answer is yes. That, 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 that fetus is taking in some sense data from its surroundings. Um, how much sense data is not clear and just how important it is, is not clear. But newborn infants are born, for example, recognizing the, they cry with an accent that is similar to the um, verbal um, language and sounds of the of the of its caregiver of its of it of the um, the woman who who birthed it, so clearly it's learning something. Now let's get back to how our brains work in the sense that we've already established we have all of these sensory inputs, and for the first time ever, I got a perspective that. I thought there was just a lot of information in my brain, but you're like, no, you start out with a whole lot of little information that cascades up or, or gets summarized up uh, until you get up to a much, high, finally up to, you know, uh, a big knitting of all this information together. Now I'm, I'm paraphrasing you describe for people what goes on in your brain, how you get these sort of little inputs and it goes all the way up to a lot of very dense information. Well, first of all, I think it's important to realize that brains don't react to things in the world. Brains predict. Your brain is using your past experience to predict 
what's going to happen next. Neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett is the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Jim Woody, the CEO of 180 Life Sciences, will talk about Dupuytren's contracture and other medical conditions all related to inflammation. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Northeastern University professor Lisa Feldman Barrett, the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. The way to think about it really is that your brain is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And it's receiving sense data from the world through your eyes and ears and nose and so on. And Any given flash of light, any given um, change in sound can have many, many, many different causes. But you don't have access to the causes. You have only access to the outcome. So you hear a bang. Well, what is that bang? Is that somebody dropped something on the floor? Did somebody slam a door? Did somebody slam a car into another car? Um, If you're in the U.S., you know, did a gunshot go off? Like what was that bang? And you don't know. What you know is that you heard a noise, but you don't know the cause of that noise. And similarly, when when your, your body is always sending sense data to your brain, you're unaware of it, but that's what's happening. And so when you feel a tightness in your chest, is that anxiety? Is that hunger? Are you having trouble breathing? Are you at the beginning of, um, uh, you know, a a cardiac event? Like, what's the cause? All your brain is getting is the effect, but it doesn't know the cause. And when you have to go from effects or outcomes to causes, that's called a reverse inference problem or an inverse inference problem. And so that's what your brain is attempting to solve 
every moment of your entire life. And the fact is, if you had no prior knowledge of anything, you'd be just in a big sea of ambiguity and uncertainty because you wouldn't know what the causes are of the sense data that you're receiving. And when I'm talking to people live, I, I have some examples that I use where I, I basically show them something that they have no experience with at all. And so they are what's called experientially blind. Um, and then I give them an experience and then their brains can draw on that experience and all of a sudden, poof, they see something you know, in a black and white blobby image that they've never seen before. And frankly, now for the rest of their lives, every time they look at that blobby image, they're going to see an image, you know, an object in it that actually isn't there. <laughs> um, it's partially, you know, everything that you see, everything you hear, everything you taste, everything you feel is some combination of what's in your head and what's outside in the world and what's coming from your body. And so your brain is always guessing, always guessing. And it's guessing using your past experience to make sense of the sense data that's coming in through your eyes and your ears and so on. The, but the interesting thing over and above that is that it's all happening at a timescale that's completely, you know, unexpected by us and sort of violates our own intuitions. Because if we were to stop everything right now, just stop time. What would happen is that your brain has a model of what's going on in the world and what's going on in your body. And it's guessing what's going to happen next. It's guessing what you're going to see next, what you're going to hear next, what you're going to feel next, and what you're going to do next. And those guesses are not some kind of abstract thing. Your brain is actually preparing itself. It's changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare to hear and see and smell and feel and do certain things. You talk about social reality. Let's go there. Sure. So reality, physical reality, you know, is, um, it is what it is. I mean, you know, things are solid, you can place something on them, you know, things are liquid, you can drink them and so on and so forth. Social reality occurs, um, when a group of humans, and I'm specifically saying humans, because as far as we know, humans are the only animals who can really do this, that a group of humans take something that by virtue of its physical nature alone does not have a certain function. But we all agree that it will serve that function. And so then it does. Okay. So the perfect example of this is money. If we all agree that little pieces of paper can be traded for material goods like food, then all of a sudden those little pieces of paper have value. And they don't have value for any reason other than we all imposed value on those little pieces of paper. Similarly, this one's my, my favorite, right? Like um, air rights. So in New York City and maybe in, in all major cities, the air above a building is actually you can sell it <laughs> so that other people can build build there or think about fishing rights in the ocean or something though these these um these things have they have value only because we agree that they do mortgages mortgages are just a promise of money in the future but those have value too and they were they were bought and sold and had value until someone decided they didn't, that is, they withdrew their consent, and then, the, then, then they stopped having value. 
And so many things in our everyday lives, which we think of as real and which, which have real impacts, um, uh, are actually socially real, meaning that a group of humans decided to impose a function on something that the thing didn't have by virtue of its physical nature. But, but because humans you know, had what's called collective intentionality, they all agreed that that thing has a function, it does be just by virtue of agreement. And if people stopped agreeing, it would lose its, its function. When I say humans have to agree, I don't mean you have to consciously agree. You just have to, your behavior has to be in line with other people's behavior. So when I'm, I'm married and I don't, I don't walk around saying to people, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married, I'm married. I just wear a ring on a particular finger and everyone knows that that has a particular meaning, right? And, and it's agreed upon meaning, unless you're in Europe when you should be wearing a ring on your other finger, on your other hand. But, you know, in North America, it's on your left hand, right? And a lot of things that we, that are really precious to us are, are um, social reality. Like, you know, you draw a line in the sand and it becomes the border between two countries. And all of a sudden you've conjured immigrants and citizens. And that has a very real effect, physically real effect on people. Um, a president, a prime minister, a queen, but let me say it again, a president, that is social reality. A president has powers just because we all agree that he does. And I say he very specifically because in the United States, we've never had a female president. Um, we all, he has those powers because of the things that we do and because of the things that we don't do. So democracy is social reality. And most of the time, physical reality constrains social reality. Like you and I could agree that we could walk through a wall, but that won't make it real, you know? We could all agree that we could eat glass as food, but that's not going to make it real. There are physical constraints. We could all agree that a virus isn't really a virus and dangerous. But like I said before, physical reality always wins if when the two come up against each other, you know? Now, besides the half lesson up front and the uh, seven essays, uh, you have an appendix here. And before you get, you make notes on every lesson on each page. It's very interesting. But before that, there's just a, a like a page and a half. And you talk about something very near and dear to my heart. And you have a graph even. You talk about the challenge of writing about science for the public. Let's go there. Sure. So, you know, as a scientist, uh, when I'm writing for other scientists, um, the goal is to be as complete as possible. So the information has to be accurate, but it also has to be as complete as possible. That is every little tiny method that I use in the laboratory or out in the world has to be documented so that another scientist could do what I do, can re could repeat the experiment that I ran. And also every inferential link, like every link that I make between ideas has to be laid out super clearly for people. That's the, that's the goal anyways in scientific writing is to be completely transparent and to be complete. The goal in science writing is to know what to leave out for the public when you're writing for the public. So, um, you know, as, as I would 
say, you know, my husband is a, a civilian. You know, he doesn't, he's not a, a, a scientist. Um, this, in my house, that's what we call civilians. He's not an academic scientist. And so, you know, he's constantly asking me, like when I'm writing, you know, is that for the 1% by which he means like the other scientists I write for? So when you write, you know, is this detail, does this detail have to be there? Does it, does like the average person really need to know that detail? Or are you putting that detail in for the 1% meaning the other academic scientists? The, the point is that you have to be accurate, but you have to know what to leave out when you're writing for the public and still have the story be as truthful as possible. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. Well, Lisa, this has been terrific. Um, I hope you come back and see us again. I still have a whole bunch of questions for you. I would love to. That would be wonderful. This was fun. My guest today is neuroscientist and psychologist, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Her book is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. So many times, multiple medical conditions are actually associated with, if not driven by, a single recognizable symptom. In this case, inflammation. From rheumatoid arthritis to Crohn's disease and many more, 180 Life Sciences is a new company focusing on diseases which are driven by inflammation. And the compound most advanced in their pipeline is Dupuytren's contracture. Ever heard of it? Well, one out of 25 people in North America and Europe have. That's how many have it. Dr. Jim Woody is the CEO of 180 Life Sciences. Yes, ironically, my wife has this and had to go through the entire process and eventually have surgery to correct it. But uh, it's very common in the U.S. and in uh, Europe, especially in the Scandinavian countries. And uh, interestingly enough, one of my board members of 180LS also told me that he has it because his grandfather had it. So there's a genetic component to this Dupuytren's. And what happens is a nodule forms in your palm and it gradually pulls your fingers together until they're kind of uh, immobile and you're a little disabled. Now, what is causing this? And when does it happen? Can it happen at any time in a lifespan? It, it's generally in older people, 40 to say 60. And uh, why it starts, no one really knows. There seems to be, as I mentioned, because of the uh, Scandinavian countries, some sort of genetic uh, disposition to do this. And uh, it just starts up as a nodule. And then the nodule gradually forms what they call fibrosis in your hands. And it starts to pull the fingers together. Does it happen in other parts of the body or is it primarily in the hand? It's Well, this is mostly in the hand, one hand or the other. And there's another condition called frozen shoulder, where about 50% of those people have Dupuytren's. And we think it's the same process going on in the shoulder, which is extremely painful and uh, causes your shoulder to be immobilized. It's another disease area that we're working on. What's the normal treatment for this? Uh, typically, they... Uh, have a number of treatments. They try some steroids. They generally don't work very well. Uh, there's a collagenase that dissolves some of the collagen, but it has a lot of side effects and uh, sometimes uh, damages the wrong tissue. Uh, and eventually you have surgery 
to uh, relieve all the contractures. And that's uh, where my wife ended up. Now, you work on something called TNF, tumor necrosis factor. Tumors, we don't like. Necrosis means death. Factors, who cares? <laughs> it's like, what is tumor necrosis factor? Because this is linked in to the work that you do. That's, uh, that's absolutely correct. So a long time ago, uh, a Dr. Cerami in New York uh, was looking at proteins that are in the blood. You have thousands of proteins circulating around in your blood. Some of them send messages to different cells on what to do. Uh, some of them tell them to stop. Some of them are good actors. Some are bad actors. Well, he found this one called uh, that he was testing in mice with tumors and it made their tumors go away. And so he named this tumor necrosis factor. It never worked in people, but it worked well in mice, I guess. And so what we found, Dr. Feldman and I, that uh, this tumor necrosis factor uh, is what drives the uh, inflammation in rheumatoid arthritis and in Crohn's disease and in psoriasis. And we were the very first to ever treat anybody with a uh, blocking agent called anti-TNF. It's an antibody uh, now known as uh, Remicade. We were the very first to do that. And there's no patients in wheelchairs with RA because of that drug and its follow-on. Well, let's go back there. Initially, when you're trying a new drug on people who are seriously ill, it's a very challenging thing. What exactly did you do? Yes. Uh, well, Dr. Feldman and I had been uh, working together, and he was able to get uh, human tissue from uh, joints of people with arthritis that had to have the joints uh, repaired. And he was able to look at all of these mediators, TNF, some called IL-1, some called IL-6. Uh, and he found out if you block TNF, it shut all the rest of them off. And that was the idea that said, you know, this is going to be helpful in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, the, the, the woman who did the actual trials was called Fanula Brennan. It was a brilliant study. And that was the foundation. And we uh, lined up uh, 10 patients, uh, all in wheelchairs. And uh, we administered the drug for the first time. This was done in England. And uh, in 20 minutes, they said their fatigue is gone and their pain is away. And several of them got out of their wheelchairs and actually did a dance down a stairway. Unbelievable. It, it, now, come on. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have the videos. I mean, it was... Uh, uh, it was like the movie, you know, where the people all wake up and uh, they uh, they loved it. Then we treated more patients and showed that it worked uh, very well. And another friend of mine uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Dr. Van Deventer, uh, felt that from his studies with human tissue that TNF was causing Crohn's disease. That's, uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease. And we treated one patient uh, and she got well and went back to riding her horse. So... Uh, and the rest of that is history. So this is this anti-TNF you know, inhibitors. You want to dampen down the TNF. It, it actually dampens down a bunch of things. And that's what's involved in many of these conditions that you're looking at now. That's exactly right. The, uh, the antibody that we give uh, binds up the TNF so it can't work. It's a little like the idea of the COVID vaccines right now. The antibodies that... Uh, the president got from Regeneron bound up the virus so it couldn't work. Well, in our case, we're binding up this uh, TNF so it can't work anymore. So now we have a brand new company. 
180 Life Sciences. And you and Dr. Feldman are still together. That's right. And, uh, yeah, we've worked together for a long time, and uh, we're good colleagues. And uh, so this is exciting because we uh, we both uh, know how to uh, develop these drugs. And we've also added on Dr. Steinman, who was another colleague. He developed a drug called Tisabri for patients with multiple sclerosis. Similar kind of idea where they're uh, able to uh, block up the inflammation. So the three of us are working together and also Dr. Rothbard, who's a chemist, joined us. Now, Dr. Rothbard, he's at Stanford. That's right. And Dr. Steinman's at Stanford. Well, he's a pediatric neurologist there. Now, as I understand it, you also have a research group in Israel. What are they doing? So this is a group that we, uh, Dr. Feldman has been working on, and uh, they're developing novel compounds for the cannabis area. And the compounds they're developing are are called cannabidiol. And uh, these will be uh, compounds that don't have any hallucinations. Uh, they don't have any addiction potential uh, and they're easily absorbable. And we already know that they work in inflammation and pain. So it adds into the uh, strength of our other programs uh, when we get these done, but they'll be very different from what you think is either cannabis or anything else, because they'll be very focused on just pain and inflammation. Now, I usually don't go down through the list, but I just want to get everybody to understand this is a brand new company and you're working on all kinds of things. You're working on post-operative dementia? Yes, that's, uh, that's right. And what we find is that in older people that have to have, uh, say, uh, hip surgery after they fall down and break their hip, or they are going through a coronary artery bypass graft, that following the surgery, uh, they uh, have some dementia. They can't remember where they are. And uh, this persists for a few days in many, and in some, maybe a third or a quarter, it goes on for months and months. And some of them end up in nursing homes, which is not a good outcome, uh, and have to be cared for. And we think that uh, the trauma of the surgery releases the TNF and that the TNF causes the dementia. And we've got some evidence that that's the case in animals. And we also can measure this in the patients undergoing surgery. So one of our trials will be to treat these patients with our anti-TNF and see if we can reduce or eliminate the dementia. And I have another note here, smoking cessation. Yes, uh, unbeknownst to me, but with Dr. Steinman, it turns out that patients with ulcerative colitis often smoke a lot, and uh, the nicotine in the smoke is an anti-inflammatory, mild, but it also, the smoke causes the damage. And uh, so when they try to stop smoking, their ulcerative colitis gets worse. So what he's developing is a special new molecule that just binds to this nicotine receptor so that it, you don't have the addiction problem with the uh, smoking, but you also get the benefit of the nicotine anti-inflammatory. That's the focus of the program. And they're in the process of selecting the best, uh, best of these molecules to actually try out. All of you have a lot of experience in going through clinical trials and coming out with a, with a drug that, that's commercially viable and, and continues to work over time. Um, and you've already got 
the Dupuytrens is already in fully enrolled in this phase 2B3 clinical trial. It's already down the line here. Tell us about that. What are you doing? What are you testing? Uh, yes, this is uh, a trial that's being run in the England. It's actually funded by the uh, Wellcome Trust and the National Health Service. We enrolled 180 patients uh, with early uh, Dupuytrens before it uh, caused a deformity, and we're injecting these nodules I mentioned earlier with anti-TNF, and they get uh, four doses. Uh, all of them have been treated. Uh, we're in the follow-up period for six months and uh, nine months now. And uh, because of the COVID, it's been a little delayed because of getting around to visit the patients and measure things. So we're measuring whether the nodules get soft and go away or whether the fingers start to contract at all. Uh, half of them are treated with, uh, with the drug and half of them are treated with a placebo. In this case, it's just saline. So we'll know whether the drug works uh, when this trial is completed and the uh, data is out probably about the middle of next year. Now, is, are these injections? Yeah, they're very teeny injections into the uh, nodule uh, in the hand. We've actually done the chemical tests in these nodules. What's driving the fibrosis? We know what it is. It's a substance called SMA. And we know if we inject with anti-TNF, it blocks that from progressing the fibrosis. Now, are there any conditions that, that you're looking you know, in the future to look at besides the ones we've mentioned? Well, there's a, a, a liver condition called NASH, non-alcoholic uh, steato, steatohepatitis, and the liver forms a lot of fibrosis there. And we think that uh, we may be able to address this with some of our uh, anti-TNFs or other agents that we have. So that's a project that's uh, at the, at the uh, laboratory bench that we're working on. I have to say that uh, this idea, and this happens, doesn't happen often, but it does happen in science, that once you figure out something that's about the system, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we could try it here, here, and here. That's exactly what's happening here, right? It's exactly right. And uh, so with our research, we're trying to discover those areas where we think the anti-TNFs will work. And we have another generation coming along after this that are quite different from the antibodies that will be even better because the antibodies block a number of things, some good, some bad, because the anti-TNF antibodies, and there's five or six of them approved in the US now, they leave you susceptible to some infectious diseases and one has to be very careful. So we have new compounds in the future that we think will avoid all that, but still give you the anti-inflammatory properties you want. I love the idea of you guys are in all these different places and you're like, hey, you know, we could put the show on right here. We'll just all stay in our own place. <laughs> We're going to get together. We're going to have this 180 Life Sciences. Why did you name it 180 Life Sciences? Well, typically the uh, anti-TNFs are kind of going down one track. Uh, almost all of them exactly follow what we did uh, from Centicor a long time ago, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's and psoriasis, a few other things, but they're not very adventurous. And so we're turning this around 180 and we're saying we're going in a, a whole different, unique directions. Is there an advantage being able to be in multiple countries right from the start? You said, gee, this is going on in the UK and this is going on in the US. What, are there advantages here? Well, the advantages is you go where the experts are. 
in Israel, the, these are the people who invented the uh, the CBD and discovered those molecules. They know more about it than anybody else in the world. CBD? That's uh, cannabis. Ah. That's the a- active ingredient in cannabis. So, so they know about this. They've been doing this for like 20 years. Uh, so what we're doing is focusing it on a very specific anti-inflammatory agent. Same in the, in uh, England, the uh, people doing the trials on the Dupatrins and the frozen shoulder, they're the experts. So uh, you, you go where the uh, experts are. And the experts are 180 Life Sciences. Is that the right answer? Uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> good. That's good. I have to say I've heard a lot of stories on all these years, but this is the first time that I've heard all these senior people. You were once president of, of Roche Bioscience, among other many other things that you've done. I mean, we're talking senior, senior people all over the world. You got together, you started this company, and you're all hitting the ground running. This isn't like a slow, or we got one thing going here. What, what brought all this together? Well, I, I think like uh, many of us, uh, we, uh, we are interested in inventing new things that help patients. And we're interested in novel new concepts and ideas and uh, ma- managing some of the science. And for us, this is exciting. This is what we love to do, as you love what you're doing. And uh, it, uh, it's all worthwhile. And especially if you have a team like this, this is a dream team of people who really know what they're doing and have done it before. Jim, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Keep us updated, won't you? Well, when uh, when the trial data comes out, we'll be happy to discuss it with you and uh, see how, uh, how well it worked. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Dr. Jim Woody is the CEO of 180 Life Sciences. More information is available at 180lifesciences.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.